pray together. Psalm 68, it says, Sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth, sing praises to the Lord. To him who rides upon the highest heavens, which are from ancient times, behold, he speaks forth with his voice, a mighty voice. So ascribe strength to God, his majesty is over Israel, and his strength is in the skies. O God, you are awesome from your sanctuary. The God of Israel gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be the Lord our God. Father, we thank you this morning. Lord, though we don't understand one of those lines we sang a moment ago, though we cannot comprehend such a mystery, Father, the mystery, one of the great mysteries of of who you are and that your word gives to us is that you ride, as this psalm says, high above the heavens. Father, we can can imagine the the widest, largest sky, the biggest scene we've ever We've ever witnessed with our own eyes, Father, we can see pictures from outer space that can't even begin to span the the length and breadth of this universe, and your word says that you are over and above that, that you ride above the heavens because of how awesome you are, and yet, Father, what these, these, this psalm, these words tell us, Lord, almost in the same breath, is that you care for people like us. And Father, if there were ever a mystery, that, that would be the ultimate mystery, that a God that great cares about people like us. Father, I'm thankful this morning that you know each heart in this room. I'm thankful that you know the stories behind the, Lord, the looks on our face, even sometimes the masks that we wear. And Father, you are intimately acquainted with us in all our ways. Father, you know, as that psalm a few moments ago said, you know our sin, you know what's wrong in our lives, but you also know what you created us for and for us to be. And Father, you have promised us as believers this incredible destiny of eternity with you where the, the shackles of this earth are shed, Father, where the, the, the sin and, and, and the darkness and the brokenness is left behind one final time. And Father, it is forever with you that we, that we worship and serve and sing your praise. And Father, we again, there's another mystery there we can't comprehend, but we sure are grateful that you've shown it to us. At the same time, Father, we're here in the meantime, and you've given us your word, and you've given us your spirit, and you've given us moments like this, Lord, an hour, an hour and a half together to to come back to home base, Father, to come back to to ground zero, as it were, Father, of of worshiping you, of seeking your face, and seeking to to hear from you in the preaching of your word. And Father, it's a, a daunting and a fearsome task and yet you're in it. So, Lord, as our Heavenly Father, we know it must be good. Father, I pray that as we go to your word now, that you would prepare us to receive not what I'm going to say, but what you're going to say to us through it. Father, we thank you that your word is living and active, and it can penetrate places in our hearts and lives that no earthly wisdom can go. And so, Father, make us open today. Open us. Lord, bring us low, Father, that we might be able to, with open hands, receive what you have to offer. And we ask for your help. Father, as always, as we, we go to your word, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to guide us in truth, to guard us from error, to deliver us from distraction, and to help us see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning in the study of your word. May we see Jesus only this morning in the study of your word. And Father, when we walk out these doors in a little while, Father, may it, may it be as people who have been refreshed and renewed by worship, Father, by, by hearing, by fellowship, Father, even by confession and repentance. Father, ready to step out into this broken world as, as vibrant witnesses and, mission, and, and missionaries, Lord, in our own right, of Jesus whom we love, Jesus whom we seek, Jesus who died and rose on our behalf, and Jesus in whose name we pray. As all God's people said together, amen. 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 You may be seated. 
And while some of you are being seated, the rest of you can scoop for Children's Church. Some boys and girls make their way out. Uh, I want you to grab your Bible uh, and turn in it with me, if you would, this morning. Uh, once again, to, to James chapter 1. If you've been here the last several Sundays, you know we are traversing just a little bit at a time through this very practical and very challenging portion of God's Word, and we've got this Sunday and next to, to sort of finish out chapter 1 and continue just to see what, what God has to say to us in, uh, again, what I sort of keep presenting to you as, as the nearest thing we have to a how-to manual anywhere in the Bible. And as I've been visiting with many of you throughout the week and even several of you this morning, you know, one of the things that uh, seems to be dawning on, on many of you as it is uh, continually dawning upon me is that just because it's a how-to manual don't mean it's easy. Um, there is there is rich stuff here in James chapter 1. There is challenging stuff here in James chapter 1. Um, but there's really, really good stuff here for us as well. Things as we're talking about, and I want to keep this theme in front of us. Sometimes it's easy to lose sight of the theme. But all the things we're looking at in here, at least in the way that we are seeking to study and I'm seeking to present them to us together, are designed not just to make us smarter, not just to make us more knowledgeable, we'll be talking about those things this morning, but to truly enable us to flourish as followers of Jesus Christ. And I don't know where you are in your walk with Jesus this morning, I don't know how it's going, I don't know how far along you are, but there's always room to flourish. There's always opportunity to grow, and, uh, and James, uh, in his own unique way, is going to give us another opportunity like that this morning. So hopefully by now you found your way to James chapter 1. This morning I'm going to begin reading in verse 18. I'm going to go through verse 25. We'll leave the last couple of verses of the chapter for next Sunday. But in this morning's passage, here is what the Word of God says. James write, it writes, in the exercise of his will, that would be the will of God the Father, in the exercise of his will... He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among his creatures. And this you know, my beloved brethren. But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man, this woman, this young person will be blessed in what he does. Now, I don't know about you, but best as I can tell, there is not much in these verses for a devoted follower of Jesus Christ to quibble with to dispute, to take issue with. Yes, there are some phrases in here, a couple of which we'll touch on, that require clarification. Yes, there are a couple of themes or ideas that we need to drill into in order to truly understand. But at the same time, what I want to begin by saying to you this morning is that underneath it all, James' essential point seems clear, and this is it. What you claim to believe ought to change the way you live. 
What you claim to believe, James is saying, ought to change the way you live. That is to say, if you've yielded yourself to Jesus, it ought to show. You ought to be different, different from who you were and different from those around you. And if you think about it, quite frankly, that's a notion that even those who don't share our faith in Jesus, uh, that they agree with, that they give assent to. I mean, if you think about it, what is perhaps the, the most frequent accusation lodged at those who are following or seek to follow Jesus Christ by those who don't? It's hypocrisy, a perceived inability, a perceived failure to practice what we preach. If you've given your life to Jesus, James says, it ought to show. But what inquiring minds should want to know is why James chose to say it here. Why James chose to bring that point to our attention right on the heels of, as we've seen the past several Sundays, a very intense discussion of trials and temptations. Simply put, really, this is sort of the question driving everything I'm, I'm going to offer you from God's Word, I'm going to offer myself again from God's Word this morning, is simply this. Why did James say that right here? Why did he remind us of these things in this particular place? And after another very fun week of study, of, of James just smacking me over the head again and again and again, I think I've landed on an answer. At least I'm going to go after one, and I'm going to offer it to you, and together we're going to see where it takes us. Because what I want to suggest this morning is that what James is doing in these seven or eight verses, however many there are, is James is telling us what it takes to successfully stand firm amidst the trials we fall into and the temptations we face. He's already told us, you will experience many trials. He's already told us, you will face frequent, even daily temptation. How do you stand firm? How do you persevere? How do you flourish through the stuff of life that, frankly, all of us would rather we didn't have to face and deal with at all? In other words, to, to, to make it as, as simple as, as I possibly can, where we're going in God's word this morning is we are going to look at what it takes to flourish in the face of trouble. What does it take to flourish in the face of trouble, the troubles of life, trials and temptations? And, and Wayne set me up perfectly for this one because to that end, I've got three things to tell you this morning. Three things that I want you to see in this passage. There are almost certainly more. Three was, was more than enough for me to grapple with. And I think you'll probably feel the same as we walk through them together. So three things I think we need to know, James wants us to know, if we are going to flourish in the face of trouble, the first of which is this. If you want to flourish in the face of trouble, if you want to stand firm in trials and temptations of life, the first thing James says we must do is remember, everybody say remember, Remember the reason why God saved us. Remember, call to mind the reason why God saved us. Look at verse 18. Because when verse 18 begins, James says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. What I want you to know about that phrase is that that, that language that James uses there, we, we sort of see it here on the surface, but the language he uses here is the language of childbirth. 
This is an expression or, or the way people in James's day talked when they were talking about the birth of a newborn baby. However, of course, James is not thinking here of natural childbirth, of physical birth. James, of course, is thinking here of spiritual birth. He's thinking of the, the new birth that you experienced, that I experienced the day we put our faith in Jesus Christ. You think about the conversation many of you are familiar with that Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus early in his ministry. John chapter 3 came to him by night. He was an educated man. He was, uh, in many ways, it would seem a spiritual man. But he was confused based on what he learned in the Old Testament law and that law he'd been seeking to live by. And then Jesus comes preaching. He says, right from the start, I came to preach good news. And Nicodemus is trying to put it together. And in his perplexity, in his confusion, he comes to Jesus secretly by night. And what's Jesus' essential message to him? He says, listen, Nicodemus, if you want to see heaven, you must be born, you must be born again. Not not of your mother, not of the flesh, but, but of the spirit. If you want to see heaven, you must be born again. And before we go further in the text, I want to ask a question. Have you been born again? Have you been born again? Now, I know a lot of you are like, yep, let's move on, but we would be silly to think that everybody in the room today having been given that opportunity, or maybe never had that opportunity, is born again. So let me just tell you for a moment what that means, because because if you don't figure this out, if you don't come to terms with this, it's not just that the rest of what I'm going to say in the sermon really isn't going to make sense. And the Bible says that. It says that those who, who know Jesus and have a relationship with Christ, the scriptures mean something. We understand them and receive them and respond to them in a, in a, in a way that, that someone who has not yet turned to Christ cannot understand. There's that much, but, but much more than that. If, if you don't settle this question of have I been born again, the Bible says your eternal soul is in peril. And so let me ask you, you say, well, what does it mean to be born again? Well, the Bible says this. It says that all of us, all of us includes you, just as it includes me, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That doesn't mean we're just imperfect people. It means we have done things, all of us in our lives from day one, that are offensive to God. He's holy. He's perfect. He's righteous. He's just. Guess what? We're not. (laughs) And it doesn't matter how much you've sinned. It just matters that you have. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And the Bible goes on to say that That the wages of that, the price of that is death. You're going to die. I'm going to die because of sin. And and not just physically, but death is an eternal thing. It's it's eternal separation from God. It's as if you die forever, separate from God. The wages of sin is death. But, the Bible says, God has a free gift. It's called eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And, And the Bible says that if we will confess our sins, yes, I'm a sinner, And as we heard in the psalm earlier that was read for us, against you and you only have I sinned. I've done my my family, my friends wrong, but ultimately the one I've done wrong most is God. If we confess our sins, confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. And we believe in our heart, your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you need to be saved. Many of us here this morning are, some of us are not. Where are you? Have you been born again? Because as I said, the the problem is a a problem of eternity, of eternal peril. Peril from which James 1.18 says, in the exercise of his will, that means it was his 
personal desire and plan, in the exercise of his will, God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for you. What we're going to celebrate in a few weeks, the death and resurrection of Jesus, was for you. It was for me. It was for us. For all who will believe. And I'm not just suggesting. I'm actually pleading with you. If you have not come to that point yet, today's the day of salvation. Today's the day where in the, the sincerity of your heart, you say simply what I just shared with you. I am a sinner against a holy God. And, and I need a Savior whose name is Jesus. And Lord Jesus, I repent. Save me. See, it's awfully simple. That's the whole point. <laughs> he suffered so that we don't. He paid the price so that we could live. He fulfilled the law we couldn't fulfill so that we don't have to. We just come with open hands. And if that's where you are this morning, you, I give you full permission to tune out for the next little while until in your own heart you have settled that matter. Young people as well. Your mom and dad may be saved, but you've got to make that decision. And there's no more important decision to make than that. You must be born again. You must to see heaven, to know Christ. And I urge you to do so today. Now, for those of us who've made that confession, for those of us here this morning who've come to that place, well, James, what I said a moment ago, and here's where we're going with it in the passage, James says, well, you and I, we need to remember why he did it. It's important to know what, but we need to remember why. So look again at verse 18. In the exercise of his will, God the Father, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that is the gospel, so that, everybody say, so that. So he saved you for a reason. There's lots of reasons, but this is the one James is concerned with here. He brought you forth, brought us forth through the gospel so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creation, among his creatures. First fruits is that first little bit you pick off the vine, you pull from the garden, and it's a sign that there's more to come, right? This is just a sample of, of more of the same that's on its way. And what James is saying, yes, I realize he's saying this to the first century church, but it applies just as much to you and me. He saved us so that through us, other people would come to know Jesus. They would be born again. That is why you were saved. To be a living witness for Jesus Christ on this planet. He saved us so that through us, others would be born again. And here's the thing. Here's where we begin to try to set this down in the context that James has been, has been giving us. I have discovered that often, and much, much, just as much by observation as anything else, watching others live for Jesus... Often what declares the gospel most clearly to your unbelieving family and friends is not your ability to walk them down the Romans road. It's not your proficiency in reciting the four spiritual laws. It's not this knack you have for taking a little colored string of beads on a bracelet and showing what each of those colors tells us about the gospel story. Now, don't get me wrong and don't take it personally. I'm not down on any of that stuff. Methods are good. There are ways to walk someone in a compelling way through the gospel. But I'm not convinced that that's what speaks loudest to an unbeliever. I think what may speak loudest to the unbelievers, the people closest to you in your life, is the way you walk through trials as a follower of Jesus. Is the way you respond to temptation. That I respond to temptation as a follower of Jesus. How do we go through the troubles of life? 
That's where the difference comes to the surface. She's not handling it the way I thought she would. Certainly not the way I think I, think I would if it were me. Because we're being watched. We are living witnesses. And what James says in verse 19, look at it. He says, this you know, my beloved brethren. Now, you know that, right? Uh, So far for most of us. I may be putting it in language you've not thought about before, but you knew this. I was saved. I'm called to be a witness. It's called the Great Commission. He says, this you know, my beloved brethren. But what does James want us to do? He wants us to remember it. He wants us to deliberately especially if we want to flourish in the face of trouble, deliberately, frequently, consciously remember it. It's not enough to know you've got to remember. Listen, I know for a fact, I know for a fact that on the 14th of August, 1993, in Colorado Springs, I got married. Got a ring and an album full of really terrible pictures to prove it, all right? I know for a fact that on that day I was married. But knowing that, Simply knowing there was a day in the past when I got married is not nearly enough. In fact, it's not at all enough to make me a a good, much less a great husband. Simply because I know I got married. No, if I ever hope to be a good husband, if I ever hope to to be a great husband, what, what will get me there is remembering why I did that. What I said to my wife, what I promised her before God and those witnesses on that day, these are the things I will do. Well, guess what? If I do them, the marriage will probably flourish. If I don't do them, I just go, oh, yes, I'm married. There it is. There's the proof. We're not going to flourish. Same goes for us all in the Christian life. You've got to remember the reason why God saved you. If you're going to flourish in the midst of trouble. Why is this happening? Right? Remember the question. Why is this happening to me? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but chief among them is so that Christ in you, the hope of glory, will shine even when you suffer, even when life is hard. If we're going to flourish in the face of trouble, we've got to remember the reason why God saved us. Secondly, James says in verses 19 through 21, we must maintain a posture of genuine humility. We're going to flourish in the face of trouble. We must maintain a posture of genuine humility. Look at verses 19 and 20. After reminding us of what we know, we were saved to live for his glory. This you know, my beloved brethren. But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now we're family, so let's talk. The fellow believers, I'm just I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I think it's a pretty sturdy limb, so I'm going to go all the way out on the end of it, okay? I have a hunch that the the fellow believers in Jesus Christ, whether they're part of this body or it's someone that, that that you knew in the past who have helped you most in your times of trial, okay? In your trouble. The believers who've been most helpful to you in your trials are not the ones who came around with long-winded explanations of why you're going through it, who sit down across from you in your living room and talk, 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 and they tell you stories about how much worse they had it, and if you, they can get through that, you can get through this. Not helpful, right? Those are not the people who have been a blessing to you. No, I bet. My hunch, my limb I'm climbing out on is the people who've been most helped to you in your times of trial and trouble are the ones who said very little 
but were with you and chose their words carefully. Thought before they speak. They were quick to listen and slow to speak. Furthermore, I have a hunch that when you've succumbed to temptation, as we all have in many ways, great or small, it's probably never been those who have come literally or metaphorically pounding on your door on a personal crusade to set you straight that have called you back to the side of Jesus. You just wanted to go away. You already know you did wrong. You need somebody to beat you over the head with a, with a Bible verse. They came to impress on you how much damage you've done. Those people do not serve us well in our times of trouble. And honestly, as I've, I've thought about it, I spent some time really trying to think this through. I believe with all my heart I have yet to meet a spiritually healthy believer who has been chided into repentance, lectured toward maturity, or shamed into joyful surrender to Jesus Christ. I just don't see that happening, and you probably don't either. It's not the way God has called us to love one another. And that took me to a thought I'd never had before about this passage. And, and I think it's there. I didn't come up with something new. Maybe you've seen it all along. I'd never seen it till 11.30 Friday morning, and, and then it kind of blew me away when I saw it. Because as I've looked at this passage and, and studied it in, in the past, I've always assumed that when James says in verse 21, to put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. I don't know about you. You may have seen it differently, and that's great. I've always thought of that as being addressed to the person who is in the place of need. You're in the trial. You're facing the temptation. Well, check your heart. Confess your sin. Get humble and listen to those who, who know better than you. And, and I think that's wise. And I think that's true. But the thought that had never occurred to me before is I think, I wonder, could it be that he's also speaking to those of us who are called or think we've been called to give that counsel, to offer that help, to bring that confrontation, even that rebuke, to a brother or sister in need? What if he's calling us to humility? He's saying, listen, before you presume to go give your advice and tell your story and, and rattle off all your opinions, how about you check your own heart? How about I check mine? And make sure that I'm not going in my own sin, my own anger, my own righteousness to deal with the other one? And what if I humble myself and say, I better sure, be sure that before I go to you, I went to him and to his word, and that I'm giving you his counsel and not my own. Because here's the, the fact, what saves souls, and again, we know this, but we need to remember it, what saves souls, what exposes sin, what strengthens faith, what directs our path is not advice. It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. If there has been anything of spiritual value that's been accomplished in your life or mine, it started with, it began with, it was rooted in the Word of God. They may not have quoted you a Bible verse, but, but if it changed your life, it was because of, of His wisdom. And, and, and that's why what I think James is saying here is that in order to, to offer help or to be helped in the face of trouble, a posture of genuine humility must be a, 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 in, in everyone present, in everyone in the room, everyone in the conversation. We must seek to be humble, slow to speak, 
quick to listen, slow to anger, because my anger doesn't get God's will done. The Holy Spirit gets his work done. So we want to flourish in the face of trouble. Number one, we've got to remember the reason why he saved us, that we're on mission. We've got to secondly maintain a posture of, of genuine humility, always yielding to the Holy Spirit's direction. And then third, finally this morning, and if, if you have read the book, studied the book of James before, this is probably the one or two portions of it that you know and maybe even love best. James says, listen, if you're going to flourish in the face of trouble, we must third and finally put what the Bible says into action. We've got to put what the Bible says what we see in it, what we hear from it, into action. You know, we've said it around here often. We've said it for years, but we haven't said it lately. The conviction, the belief that it is impossible to truly encounter Jesus Christ and remain unchanged. You simply can't do it. A personal encounter with Jesus Christ will change anyone. It was true in the Gospels. It was true throughout the New Testament church, and it's still true, true today. Whether it's in prayer, whether it's in the preaching of God's word, whether it's in a, a, a personal study of the Bible on your own, when you are truly confronted with the person of Jesus, he's not a historical figure, he's not a, not a character on a flannel board, but, but you're reading the word and you're confronted with him, or, or the teaching of the Gospels and, and, and of the New Testament as well. Listen, every time that truly happens, one of two things will happen to you. It'll pull you nearer to him or push you farther from him. I should have done that the other way, right? It'll pull you nearer to him or push you farther from him, right? It's going to do, there's, there's no such thing as a neutral encounter with Jesus Christ. It may not seem so in the moment, but it always moves you one direction or the other it will not let you remain neutral. And that's precisely James' message here in 22 through 25. Let's read him again because what he says is so important. Verse 22, But prove yourselves doers of the word, the word of God, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. And once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man, this person, this believer, will be blessed in what he does. Now you can see the picture, but let's just, for the sake of, of clarity, let's drill down into it just a little bit. James is giving us an illustration. The illustration is fairly clear, I hope. He's talking about two people who do exactly the same thing. Both of them take a good, long, hard look at their face in a mirror. Now, I know that, that in some of your translations, verse 24 makes it look like the, the guy who's the hearer but not the doer, that he just takes a passing glance. That's a false translation. That's not what it says. The word means a good long look. So we have two people who do the same thing. They look at themselves directly in the mirror. And unlike a, a Snapchat filter, it tells you the awful truth, right? Whenever you look in the mirror, what's the primary message you get? There's work to be done, right? <laughs> Something needs to happen. None of us wake up in prime condition ready to go. There's something that needs to be done. Now, just to have fun with the illustration, let's say that both these individuals, as they look in the mirror, 
they see the same thing in their reflection. Both of them have a tasty little pinch of spinach stuck between their front teeth, right? Mmm, right there. And they both see it, and they acknowledge it, and they recognize it as they look in the mirror. And both of them acknowledge, hey, this is a problem. It, it, it shouldn't be this way. This needs attention. But where they differ, of course, James is saying, and I know this seems ridiculous, but walk through it with me anyway, only one of them does something about it. One of them sticks around and addresses the problem, and the other didn't. Let me just ask you a question. Which one do you want to sit across from at the conference table that afternoon? <laughs> right? It's disgusting. You don't want to see that. And, and there's that awful, like, do I tell them? Do I not tell them? Now I waited 20 minutes. It's too long to tell them now. How am I going to handle And it's just an awful situation for everyone involved. But, but wait, you say. Now you're, you're, you're going against your argument. You're telling me one of them walked away changed and the other one didn't. One of them saw the problem, didn't do anything about it, and, and he, she wasn't changed. Sure, for a moment. But can anybody reasonably say that if the person allows that to stay right there in their face, that it's not going to impact things throughout the rest of the day? Conversations, interactions, job interview, right? It's going to make a difference. It's going to have an impact. People are going to relate to you differently until it's solved. And to think otherwise, James says, to see, to look in the mirror and and see a need and not address it, and think that nothing's going ch- to change, nothing will be wrong. James says, look at verse 22, he says that is deluded thinking. Literally, he says, prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. The word literally means self-deceived. Don't be a self-deceiver. Don't go around fooling yourself. Don't go around fooling myself. And, and how much more so when that mirror is the word of God? The penetrating, honest, unchanging, unfailing word of God. How much more am I fooling myself if the mirror of God's word shows me something that must be done and I refuse to do it and think there won't be an impact, that it won't be a problem? But what does James say on the other hand, verse 25? He says, however... The one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty. By law of liberty, again, he means the gospel. What has the gospel done? It has broken the shackles of sin in your life. It has emancipated you. It has set you free to live for the purpose God created you, the law of liberty. And when I look in this law and I remember who I am and what Christ has done for me and this new identity, this new birth I have experienced, and I look into that law and I see what God tells me, And abides by it, does it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. This man, this woman, this young person will be blessed in what they do. Now, I don't have any idea what that blessing is. I looked, I tried, I really wanted to come to you with like, these are the four things God promises will happen in your life if you obey his word, right? That that, that I know exactly what this blessing is talking about. I don't know what it means because he doesn't tell us. But I do know this, 1 Corinthians 2.9, it is written, okay, written in the old, reminded in the new, it is written that no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no mind on earth has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. That's enough definition of blessing for me. How about you?
We can't even imagine what he's done, what he has in store for those who love him. And what did Jesus say about love? The one who loves me keeps my commandments. If I show you what you should do, just do it. If I show you what you should not do, don't do it. If I show you you need to get off this path and get back on that one, you better do it. Sooner the better. And you'll be blessed. That tells me that what James is saying here is that the way to flourish in the face of trouble is by putting what the Bible says into action. Bible commentator, scholar by the name of Alec Motyer has written, he's written a lot of good things, but, but one of the things I came across this week that he has written regarding this very thing was this. He said, quote, it is possible to be unfailingly regular in reading our Bibles, but in doing so to achieve no more than simply having moved the bookmark forward. It's possible to be unfailingly regular in reading our Bibles and simply move the bookmark forward. And the same goes for Sunday morning church attendance. The same goes for that new worship song on repeat in your car. If, if, if what we hear and what we read and what we see is not met with action, it's, it's not just that we won't grow nearer to him, but we will. And you've experienced this, and so have I. We begin to drift farther from him. Our hearts become cool, and then they become hard. And they become distant. And it's possible to go through all the motions and, and yet not be moving on toward maturity. Why? Because following Christ is more than a habit. Spiritual growth is more than knowledge. Walking with Jesus is more than a feeling. It's an action. It's a response. And here's what I believe about you this morning, all right? We're family, so we're still talking. I believe something about you this morning. If you know Jesus, you want to grow. Even if you're far from him this morning, there's something in you that says, it's not where I want to be. I know you love him. I, I know you want to please him. I know you don't want to disappoint or, or, or disgrace him in any way, whatever you've done. I know that's true about you. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives within you. And that's his job, is to, to compel you, to, to persuade you, to remind you to walk with Jesus. I believe you want to follow Jesus with all your heart. And so do I. But merely wanting it isn't enough. Because some of us want it for a long time, and that want is never met with an action. But the big idea of today's message, it's very simple. And thankfully, very clear. It is that moving toward maturity means taking the next step. Whatever the step may be. What he wants you to do, what he wants you to stop, what he wants you to change. How do you move toward maturity? Just take the next step. And then the next one. And then the next one. If you're far from Jesus, you're not going to get it all turned around in an afternoon. You may come back to him in an afternoon, in a moment, in a prayer. If you want to move toward maturity, if you want to satisfy that longing in your heart for Christ, next step, next step, next step, and the one who does the word of God will be blessed. Father, I don't know what more you could say to us, what more your word could tell us about 
about spiritual life, about Christian living, about walking with Jesus than that. To take the next step. Father, for some of us, the next step is, is a joy to consider. It's a step of faith, but, but it's a step of obedience and a step we're excited about. And it's different for each one of us, but for some of us, Father, the next step is scary because it means turning around. It means admitting and confessing where we're wrong. It means waking up to the reality that, that spiritual drift is dangerous. And, and we didn't realize how far, because of passivity or inattention, we've, we've drifted away from, from you. We're still yours, but Father, we're not close. Father, I, I love my brothers and sisters here today. We love one another. We love you, and, and we want to please you, and we want to we want to honor you. We want to walk with you. And I pray, my brothers and sisters here today, that each and every one of us, Father, we not just have the courage, but have the, the faith, the obedient faith to take the next step of walking with you, trusting that, that you'll keep your promise to bless, to keep, to walk with us, and then you'll give us another one. Father, I pray as always, you'll take the things of truth we've, we've looked at here this morning and seal them to our hearts. You take all the rest and, and let it be forgotten so that we leave looking to and, and following after Jesus alone in whose name we pray. Amen.